This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Mike Francesa podcast, betrivers.com. Now, uh, before we get to our guests, we're going to do the uh, NBA playoffs and the NFL draft, which is coming your way starting this Thursday evening. Uh, we promised we would answer your emails. You can email us uh, at Mike Francesa podcast at gmail.com. That's Mike Francesa podcast at gmail.com. If you do that, we will uh, answer them. So we promise to answer a couple of them. So we have some here. Mons has grabbed a bunch. So we'll answer a couple now. Here we go. This is from Banks in South Carolina. I'm wondering what your take is about the Yankee outfield. Beyond the known problems of Joey Gallo, I'm curious if you think the Yankees might actually bring Gaudy back as a fourth outfielder. I, I don't think they will. Uh, I don't think they thought he had a lot left last year. Although uh, I think if we had a, if the Yanks had a severe injury in a pinch, it could definitely happen. I think he'd be open to it. Um, I don't love the Yankee outfield. Uh, I'm not a huge Hicks guy. I don't think he's a, a great everyday player. I think he's a good fielder. I think he's uh, can be an okay player, but I don't I don't love him. I don't love him overall as a, as an everyday player. He's not not my favorite. Uh, listen, uh, Judge is a top player. We know that. I thought he made a mistake turning down the money he did, and the Yankees should never up their offer when he's going to be 30 years old before they negotiate. So, uh, again, so uh, I think overall they can always go out and get an outfielder in a pinch. I don't think there's any question about that. But uh, I don't love the outfield, and I do think the Gallo thing has been a colossal blunder. He doesn't fit. He is very uncomfortable, and he is a feast of famine player on his best day. So to get him where he's uncomfortable is not a good idea. So from that standpoint, uh, I'm not in love with the Yankee outfield. Uh, All right, Lucas joins us. How important is it for the Jets to be playing meaningful games in December? It's been year after year, the Jets season being over in October. As a Jet fan, the expectations for this year is that we're a team that is in the hunt in December when they show the playoff picture. Do you agree with that expectation? And is it going to be because Zach Wilson took a big step forward or the defense played much better? Listen, I think the Jets are still a long way away from being a competitive team. I think they have gone about the offensive line correctly. They put a lot of their future in that left tackle. If he is not going to get himself in shape and be committed to football, it is going to be a very severe blow to their franchise. If he does come back and proves to be a guy who can be a top left tackle, they now have, with one more draft pick, a very secure offensive line. Uh, They can start to add pieces 
to the offense. They need another explosive player on at wide receiver. They should be able to pick that up in this draft. Uh, defense is going to take them some time. They have to build a defense completely. So the offense will be ahead of the defense. They have some pieces at wide receiver, at running back, on the offensive line. The quarterback with the year under his belt should be better. So the offense is going to be ahead of the defense. The defense needs really two legitimate big-time playmakers they don't have. So uh, I think it's a long shot that they're playing big games in December this year. I think what you want them to do is take another step forward, show you they put the building blocks in place, and then next year has to be the year. They're going to get another year. It's going to take them another year. I didn't think they showed a lot of maturity either on the field or off the field last year as an organization. I think I need to see a quantum leap forward this year and then a big step next year. I'm willing to give them that. Am I sold on the coach? I am not. John G., what do you think the Yankees should do about Gleyber Torres? Uh, He seemed like he was going to be the next great Yankee, but obviously things have fallen off. This is a huge year for Torres. Torres is probably not going to be as good as I thought he was going to be or you thought he was going to be. That's number one. I don't know if he's ever going to be the player I thought he was early on. I I thought he was going to be a legitimate star. I'm questioning that now. The shortstop thing set him back dramatically, both on the field and off, mentally, physically, in every way it set him back dramatically. Plus, the Yankees have treated him this year like he's just another guy. They have not treated him like a building block. They have not treated him like a future star. They're no longer treating him like they treat Judge. There was a time when they did. They are not treating him that way anymore. So he has got to earn his his way back there to be treated that way. I think they're smart not to treat him that way. He hasn't earned being treated that way. What I like about him is that I can still see him as an example the other day against Cleveland. Big at bat. With a game tied against the guy who throws hard, gets a big base hit the right center field, wins the game. Okay? He's still capable of a big at bat. Even the year he was great, he feasted on the Orioles. I mean, really feasted on the Orioles. So we need to see more consistency from him. And I think being away from shortstop is the first big plus. But he has a ways to go, and I do think... Uh, This is a very big year for him. Would I treat him the way I treated him two years ago in terms of how I think about the future with him? I would not. He doesn't have to be part of the future. I think two years ago he had to be. I don't think now he has to be. As a matter of fact, I think very few Yankees in the everyday lineup have to be part of the future. And to me, that includes Judge. That includes Judge. I don't think this team falls apart if it loses Judge. I really don't. I think there are a lot of answers they can make going forward with the money they save building the team around other players. I'm not worried about Judge. I'm really not. I am worried about other parts of this team a lot more than I'm worried about whether or not Judge stays in the future. Thanks for the emails. We'll get to more of them uh, every time we do the podcast. If you send them, I'll answer them. So uh, keep sending them along. Send them to Mike France. Have some podcast at gmail.com. We will be uh, joined by both uh, 
NBA and NFL guys today. Uh, Brian Getzeller on the NBA, Albert Breer on the draft and the NFL. And we'll get to that right after this. Want to email the Mike Francesa podcast? Drop Mike a note at Podcast at gmail.com. Albert Breer is a senior NFL reporter, uh, does the Monday morning uh, quarterback, uh, obviously one of the top guys at what he does in the uh, NFL. Busy time as we approach the week that the NFL loves, and that is a draft week. And as I stated in the podcast I did with Mr. T the other day, no sport at any juncture has ever built a non-event or showed <laughs> more marketing genius by building a non-event into a cottage industry into something that supports entire networks and and employs hundreds of guys around the entire year, the entire calendar. And it is become one of the big dates on the calendar in all the sports, and it is nothing more than a draft. I mean, it is amazing, the growth of this event. It has grown more than any non-event I've ever seen in my life, but it is remarkable. It just shows you the ability the NFL has to market and to create uh, and no better example ever than what goes on this week, because you're talking about since the season ended, all the talk has been, and it goes on all year anyway, from one draft to the next, as soon as one draft ends, the next conversation begins and it never ends. And it is amazing how it is covered, and that's why everybody loves it. And and it's true, they do, and everyone can moan about it, but they all are glued to it, and I will be too, for the especially the first round. Uh, we're joined now by Albert. Albert, uh, it's an interesting, interesting year in this. It reminds me of the Russell Maryland year. There's not a guy, number one. If you're Jacksonville, this is the wrong year to have the top pick because you're not going to yep. get value you would have had if you could have traded out and there was a luck or a Mahomes or a great quarterback that somebody had to have and you would have collected, you know, three or four picks for. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to take someone. And let's be honest, there's probably nobody in this draft worthy of being the first pick. Yeah, and I agree with that, Mike. You know, I've talked to some teams who believe that if you took this class and dumped it into last year's draft, there might not be a guy who would have gone in the top dozen picks. Wow. Um, and last year was a really good year. Um, but if you think about it, like Micah Parsons went 10th last year, or Micah Parsons went 12th last year. Devonte Smith went 10th. Um, you know, Jalen Waddle sixth. Jamar Chase is fifth. Patrick Sertan goes ninth. Um, you know, I, I think those guys would all be the top guys at their position this year, you know? And so, um, you look at the makeup of the class, and I don't think there's any question that as far as high-end blue-chip talent, it's just not there. And the other thing is, like, the strength of the draft, the strength of the class is at positions that aren't sexy. It's hard to put them up on the marquee, right? Like, so, you know, I you can find a good pass rusher, maybe not a great one. There's not a Bosa or a Miles Garrett or a Jadevian Clowney at the top, but you'll find good pass rushers at the top. And there's not a Trent Williams, but there are good offensive tackles in the to- at the top. And in that way, it reminds me a little bit of 2013. So you're right. I mean, I, I think it's not the best year 
have the first pick or the second pick or the third pick. Um, you know, I think one of the strengths in the draft is is because so many kids went back to school because of COVID, um, and so many kids had the extra year of eligibility and and used the extra year of eligibility. You have some older players in this year's class, and I think you have some depth in this year's class. So that's why so many teams are trying to trade down. It's the sort of year where you'd rather have, I would say, you know, five or six picks in the second and third rounds rather than you know, two picks in the first round. I just think that's the way the makeup of the class is. All right. So with that being said, and also you don't have, which you have in some years, three quarterbacks going off in the first five or six picks. You don't have a quarterback probably going off the board until where? 15, 14? Is that, is somebody go earlier than that? Or is that probably right? I mean, the pressure point is, is, um, you know, is Carolina at six. And, If they fall past there, they keep going. Yeah, I mean, I I think because, you know, so many people in that building have so much on the the line this year, um, and because they don't have, like, a clear answer at quarterback, um, you know, I think everybody's going to be watching them and what they do at six, but they've also got a big hole left tackle. And so if one of the top three tackles, either Charles Cross, Ike Kwanu, or Evan Neal, fall to them at six, I think that they probably – take they, they probably sit there and take one of those guys um they'd rather move down but again it's it's hard this year to move down and so if you get past six you know i've heard atlanta at eight and seattle at nine connected to matt corral but um that the, the old miss quarterback back but that's probably you know more of a scenario where they take them at the top of the second round or trade into the bottom of the first round for them um you get past those cluster teams mike i mean then we're talking about maybe New Orleans at 19 or Pittsburgh at 20 as being where the first quarterback comes off the board. And in that way, it does feel a little bit like, again, 2013, which was the EJ Manuel year, you know, where EJ Manuel went 16th overall. I believe Geno Smith went in the second round that year. Um, and then, you know, I, I think it was, you know, you were waiting until the fourth round when Matt Barkley went there. Um, at the start of day three until another quarterback came off the board. I, I think more will go in the top three rounds than that year, but the top of the group kind of feels that way where we might be waiting a while for the first one to be drafted. All right. We're talking with Albert Breer, the uh, clear, everyone thought Hutchinson was going one. Now you hear these rumors. Uh, the Jacksonville is moving away from him. We don't know if they are, or if that's just to create intrigue or create some kind of demand, or maybe they are. Uh, if I give you right now, best case scenario, one, two, three off the board, how do they come off the board? One, two, three. So like, I actually had a mock that went up um, this morning and I, I had Trayvon Walker, the kid from Georgia, um, pass rusher going first to Jacksonville, Aiden Hutchinson staying right there in Detroit and going to the Lions at two. Um, and then um, the Texans taking Ike Aquanu at three. I think Jacksonville very well could take a tackle. I think they could take Hutchinson. Um, you know, Trent Balky said last week the four players that play for them um, or that there are four players in play, in play for them. I believe those four players are Trayvon Walker, um, Aiden Hutchinson, Ike Aquanu, and Evan Neal. Um, and, and so, you know, I think sort of it, it depends on what happens there. Um, but I think one way or the other, the Lions take a pass rusher, either Walker or Hutchinson at two, depending on who's there for them. And then I think the Texans take a tackle at three. 
And this obviously is going to have like a domino effect because I do think to some degree the top five or six picks are controlled by what happens with the tackles. I think the Jets could take one at four. I think the Giants could take one at five. I think the Panthers could take one at six. And so how many tackles come off in the top three, I think sort of dictates the way four, five, and six go. Let me ask you this question first, Albert. I asked it to Mr. T, and he thought that Gardner was the best player in this draft. Who do you think the best player, who will be the best player in this draft? I'm an Ohio State guy, and Aiden Hutchinson kicked our ass, so I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say Aiden Hutchinson. Um, you know, Mike, I, I'm not a scout. I, I just know this. Um, you know, I, I feel like Aiden Hutchinson's been stereotyped a little bit um, because his first three years, he wasn't as good as he was his fourth year, and he kind of had this reputation for being a try-hard guy. But if you look at his testing numbers, they aren't far off from what the truly elite guys have done. Now, he's a little bit of a linear build, and he's got shorter arms. Um, but, you know, having talked to him, his he, he compared himself to T.J. Watt. And if that's the result of this, then, then, you're get a then, then, everybody's, ha- then everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just look at him, and I think – I absolutely think he's he's there. It's like like, like – if you're talking about best player in the draft, he has to be in the conversation. Walker's got a ton of upside, but you just haven't seen him do what he's going to be asked to do in the pros, which I think is a scary proposition. If you're taking him in the top two, I, I I'd be right there. And I'm assuming Mr. T being Tannenbaum, right? I'd agree with Mike that I think sauce Gardner's in that mix. Um, and then, you know, I think any of the three tackles would be in play. I do think the kid from Mississippi state, Charles cross, there are more people in the league who think he's the best player in the draft than people realize. And so like, I think Charles cross is the one where if you're okay with the fact that he comes from a Mike Leach offense, which hasn't been great, you know, over historically over the years, going back to Texas tech and Washington state, when it comes to producing offensive linemen, if you can wrap your head around that, like, I think that there are the, the, the people that can, really look at Charles Cross as a guy who could wind up being a franchise left tackle. So I think Hutchinson's probably the top player. I think Gardner's close. And I think Cross, if you're comfortable with the offense he's coming from, could be seen as being in that group as well. We're talking with Albert Breer, of course, uh, who does a great job as one of the top NFL reporters. Okay. Um, the Jets pick 4-10. and ten. The Giants pick five and seven, just to show you how sorry they are. It is very unusual to have teams have two picks in the top 10. The Jets and Giants both have two picks in the top 10, just to show you how far things have fallen for both of them. They both, the Giants picking five and seven, the Jets picking four and 10. You have to come out of the the abyss and, when you have this kind of ability to add to your team, they can't screw this off. If they do, they're going to be looking for new people again. That's the way this works. Okay. And they've been looking for new people every couple of years. Anyway, we know how bad both franchises have been jets. First, what are you expecting at four and 10 from them? So like, I think the biggest needs, I think the, the, the three spots that they'd like to come out with reinforcements for, um, with and I think you have to look at this with the Jets, the four picks in the top forty, right? Because they got those two picks in the thirties, at thirty-five and thirty-eight. Right. So I think you have to look at this as sort of a mosaic of those four. Um, 
pass rusher, corner, and receiver, I think, are the three spots. Now, to me, the wild card is this Iki Aquanu from NC State. So Joe if Douglas, he's on the board, you really, think they're taking him? I think there's a good chance. And I, I just I, I look at him as a sort of guy where, like, I think he's got a chance to be, like, from the people I've talked to, to be a Zach Martin type of offensive guard. Right, that's, like, a, that's so a very high compliment. Tomlinson. Very high compliment. They have Tom. Yep, they have they have Tomlinson. They have Vera Tucker, and maybe you know in that scenario, if he is playing guard for you, kick Vera Tucker out to right tackle. The other piece of this, they're not happy with Mackay Becton right now. Well, listen, and Becton so, has to like, be good for that. If Becton isn't a football player, if he's a guy who eats himself out of the league, where it's starting to look like he is eating himself out of the league, but if he is. This is going to set the jet back the Jets back again. Right. If he's not, so, they have a really good offensive line with one more player. And that's the that's the beauty of the Aquanu pick is that if you were to take him, you can play him anywhere. Like right, like so. So do you he, think he gives you is right now heading towards bust? Is that what you're hearing? Is that he's yeah, heading and I towards- think that that's sort of yeah, and it feels that way. And I think the idea is. Like Aquanu can be Makai Becton insurance. Like he can play left tackle, and he's was a really good left tackle in college. So if you need him to play left tackle, he can be your left tackle of the future. And the way I've heard him describe, he'd be a really good NFL left tackle and All Pro type guard. Of guard. Okay, so, so All Pro where, guard, a useful tackle. That's a very good player to have. There's many guys who can play right. both, but you're saying he's a he's a stone great guard and and a good tackle. Yeah. All right. Let's say right. he's not there. What do they do? If he's not there, if he's not there, I think Sauce Gardner becomes somebody who's really in play for them at four. Now, the one caveat is that Robert Sala comes from the Pete Carroll School of Defense. They generally haven't value corners the same way times have changed the schemes adjusted i i sauce gardener's got the, the 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 measurables that that sala loves in corners he's six foot three and he's a rock solid player and will fit what your culture is what you want it to be all of that so i think you know and if, he's if got size not there, you know that yeah and i i, I think if Aquanu's not there I think if Aquano and Sauce are both there, it's a discussion. I think if Aquano is not there, maybe it gets a little easier and you take Sauce. And then I think you come back at 10 and you either get your pass rusher or your receiver, depending on who's there. Jermaine Johnson's one from Florida State, who I've been told to keep an eye on with the Jets. And then I think Jamison Williams, as long as you're comfortable with the idea of maybe not having him for the first six or seven weeks of the season, like he's somebody who could pay off in a very big way. And you know, Mike, they tried to get Tyree Kill. This is a kid in this year's draft who can bring that sort of dynamic to your. That's offense. what everybody so, says. They say he's the most yeah. elusive player in, as at the receiver spot. And I would have done anything, and I don't know if the Jets did. And I understand that Hill thought Miami's a better franchise. He's right. He also doesn't have to pay state income tax. He's right, and he gets to play in hot weather. He's right. So there's a lot of reasons not to play in New York. I understand that. Uh, and it would have taken probably a lot more money to get him to go to New York. Uh, but I would have done anything to get him. He's, an, he's a game changer. He's a complete game he's changer. Unique. He changes yeah. everything in the franchise. Well, he's not, nobody can duplicate him. Uh, he's that good. But, you know, I, I, they might have tried hard to get him. I can't criticize them. There were a lot of reasons why Miami was a better fit. 
Yeah, and Mike, I mean, I, I'm with you, and I look like part like if you look at the draft the last three or four years, um, and the way trends work in the NFL, everybody's looking to get the next Tyreek. Like Hollywood Brown was the first receiver taken in 2019. Henry Ruggs was the first receiver taken in 2020. And last year, Jalen Waddell went sixth overall. What do those guys all have in common? They're all burners, you know? And that's, I think, the influence that Tyreek Hill has had on the rest of the league. Everybody's looking for their own version of it. And, I mean, the fact is, like, if you, like, those guys have become good players, but are they Hill? No. Probably not. Nobody's Hill. Hill, Hill's special. He's a a unique, he's a unique player, a unique player, a a once in a generational player. He is. And Jameson's like the, and Jameson, if you watch him play, he's got that sort of explosion and he's got that sort of big playability again, like, like, is he the same thing as Tyreek? I mean, history has told us the last few years because teams have been turning over every rock looking for that guy that he's probably not that guy. Uh, but like he can bring that sort of element to your offense. So if they were looking for it in Hill, Jamison, somebody they could get that with a 10. Um, you know, I think the question then becomes a 10. It's like you could take the pass rusher there in Jermaine Johnson. Like, do you have a better chance of doubling back and getting a receiver in the second round or a pass rusher? I think most people would tell you that the scarcity of pass rushers is greater than the scarcity of receivers. So you might have a better shot at getting a receiver in the second round than you would a pass rusher. So then maybe you should take the pass rusher with the 10th pick. Uh, And there's obviously two or three good edge rushers. Now you talked about Walker going number one. Walker's a guy that is, is I think the make a break player in this draft. Someone's either going to be really smart or really dumb with Walker. They're either going to look great or they're going to say, why did they take him at the top of the draft? So he's not going to leave them. I think a lot in between. Right. And like, I think the thing about Walker, so like I, I, I was talking to, um, I was talking to a GM the other day and um, he had been at, at one of Walker's games in the fall and he said, he walked up on the guy and he was shocked. And he was like, my God, like this guy, like, like he looked like, like, like the, the, the comp he gave me, like just how the guy looks is miles Garrett. Like that's what he's physically built like. And obviously the testing numbers were crazy. And so like, I think it gets in these guys heads, like, okay, like what can I make of him? And in a year where there isn't a miles Garrett, do you kind of, manufacture that in your head like if this and this and this and this work then maybe we have that sort of player the problem is is like what you want him to be in the pros is like a defensive end who can rush off the edge and create havoc and that's not really what he was in college like he's a good kid plays hard plays the run well but most of his splash plays were like him running down someone from behind rather than like putting a pat putting a pass rush move on a tackle, getting around him and getting to the quarterback. And so like that's the issue with him is like what you are gonna want him to do in the pros, you just didn't see a lot of it in college. Interesting. He 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 becomes a fascinating player, I agree. All right, the Giants now sitting where they are, they have been an utter embarrassment. First of all, do you think the new tandem they put together, do you like it? Should you be? Yeah. I have no feeling about these guys. I, I don't know if they're going to stink or be good. I don't know either one of them at all. I, uh, I I've heard good things about both guys, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, um, 
I don't know if these guys are going to be as bad as the guys. Listen, I never, ever thought the last hierarchy had a chance. I, I think the general manager was an embarrassment from day one. He and I were at war from day one. Okay, he basically banned me from the organization. Uh, So, uh, I mean, he was a joke. He destroyed that organization while he was there. He's gone now. Do you like the people or are you wondering about the people they hired? I like the I like the people. And as you know, Mike, these things are hard to predict. Right. Completely. Yeah. Very hard to predict. Absolutely. I, I think they I think they have three things going for them to me. Number one, like both those guys have a good diversity of experience, right? Like Joe Shane worked in Carolina, worked in Miami, um, and then winds up in Buffalo. So he's seen different things. He's seen things work. He's seen thing, things not work. Same thing with Brian Dayball, worked for Nick Saban, worked for Bill Belichick, and then worked in a completely different sort of environment, working for Sean McDermott in, in, in Buffalo. So these guys have seen a lot of things. Number two, until he came up with, until he came and hooked up with Allen though, I never heard anything good about Dayball. I always thought Dayball was just another guy. Yeah. And you know, like I, but I think you got to give these guys a chance to grow. You know what I mean? Like, and I think he did over the years grow and, you know, he went back to new England after his first time there, he called plays in the NFL. Then he goes to college. Um, you know, he's, obviously like helped to develop Tua Tungvaloa at Alabama for the year he was there, um, worked with Jalen Hurts. They were able to win a national championship. And then he goes to Buffalo and develops Josh Allen. So he's seen, like, I think because he's gone through so much, like you have a lot of, I think you have like a good amount of experience having been around of a lot of smart people and having grown through it. Like if you're looking at Brian Dayball, if you want to look at the bright side of it, right. And, and I think like, that's the second piece of it is that both these guys through their experience in Buffalo, Mike, I think what the giants have needed over the last half decade, I think the whole time there was this need to tear it down to the studs. And they were always hesitant to, because I don't think John Mara ever wants to have a bad team, like a really bad team, you know? Right. And so I think that they kind of kept hanging on to guys and there were a bunch of half measures. These guys have seen a ground up operation. Cause that's what Buffalo was when they got there. And I think that that's the way that they're going to build it. So I think that that helps too. Number three, they work together. So there's no guessing, you know, I think when they hired Gettleman and, and, um, and Shermer, and then they paired Gettleman with Joe judge, you were projecting a bunch of stuff. It's like, yeah, we think this is going to work, but we don't know these two guys, Joe and Brian have worked together. So, you don't need to worry about the same sort of drama you might if you're putting two guys together who have never worked together before. So I think for those reasons, there's good, there's a, there's, there's reason to be optimistic about it. Now it's going to take time and I think it's going to take patience. And that's the part of it that is tough because giants fans have been through a lot in the last six or seven years. But I would just say like this year again, cause I think this is a ground up operation. What you're looking for is going to be incremental improvement and our individual players better in November and December than they were in September and October, because that's really what you saw consistently over the years in Buffalo, even when they were at the beginning stages of what they wound up building there. All right. These two picks will tell me a lot about where they think they are and where they want to go. That, that, that will tell me yep. a lot. Now they need a lot of help. We know that. Okay. So they need, they need people in a lot of places. We know that. All right. So they can go a lot of places here. Are they going to make the typical, like if it was old giants, 
you knew they would take here, they would take a lineman and they would take a a, a pass rusher. That would be it, and we'd be gone on our way. Are these guys going to be as as basic as that, or are they going to be a little more interesting? <laughs> I think it. I, I mean, I, basic. I, I don't know if I put it that way, but I do think like you're going to be looking for them. I think the one thing to look for is look at look for them to try to fill premium positions with the fifth and seventh picks. And I still think there's a chance they move that seventh pick. I think there's a chance the Jets move the tenth pick. I've heard both those both these teams have sort of looked at the idea of trying to move those picks to 2023 um, because next year's draft class might be stronger than this one. And so you want to give yourself the flexibility to move around next year. If you can do that, great. I don't think they'll be able to do it, but it's something to kind of keep on your radar. I think at five, they take a left tackle. And I think and I think there's a good chance it's Charles Cross from Mississippi State. They'll have time to develop him. Um, and I think that that allows you to move Andrew Thomas, who they took high a couple of years ago, probably to his more natural position on the right side. Um, and then I think, you know, like there's the, the, the seventh pick is probably a little bit more open-ended. So if sauce were to fall there, can I see that? Yeah, I could see that. Um, could if that they let go, if Gordon is on the board and they don't take him, they're crazy because if then, right. if somebody doesn't take him <sighs> as low as five or seven, they're out of their mind. Yeah. And so I think like, but I, that, that, that's the point I'm making though, Mike, is he plays a premium position. Like, I think that's the thing that you, you're going to look for here. Left tackle, pass rusher, corner. I would look for Joe Shane and Brian Dayball to try and fill premium positions. Like, positions where, like, you could wind up having a $25 million player. That's the yeah. way I would look at and, it. And, so, be, and, and like listen, you, they need everything, too. They need guys. And and you want, and these are cornerstone. You know, you're talking left tackle, edge rusher, uh, cornerback. You're talking, corner. you know, you're talking cornerstone yep. positions of the team. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's and, and that's why I would have my eyes on, again, like the Evan Neals, the Charles Crosses um, on offense. And then, you know, I think on defense, the pass rushers, you know, your Kayvon Thibodeaus and the corners, guys like Sauce Gardner. All right, um, quarterbacks, first quarterback off the board is? I, I, like, so I know when it's I did not my easy. Mock, I, I, I know that's why I asked I because Kenny it's Pickett. not easy. It's, I, it's, yeah. it's like a lottery I, to figure out who's going to be the first quarterback off the board. I, I had Kenny Pickett going 19 to New Orleans and Malik okay. Willis going 20 to Pittsburgh. I think, you know, you could flip-flop those two. Um, I think Corral could go at the end of the first round. I think Ritter could sneak in the end of the first round. I think those guys could slide too. You know, so what like, about just, the Sam Howell great... stuff? Are, they, are you hearing that? When so, I saw Howell play, Howell he was terrible. Was, he was terrible when I saw him play. What, here's what's interesting about Sam Howell is like he's an A plus kid. He's tough as nails. He's a really good leader for North Carolina. If you're okay with his height, which is like he's Baker Mayfield's height, right? Um, and he plays a little bit like Baker. Um, there are things to like there. And I have had some teams say to me, maybe the best play is to get Sam Howell in the second or third round because you're not overreaching if you do that. You're not married to the guy. It doesn't preclude you from trading for a quarterback next year or using a first-round pick on a quarterback next year. You can still do that. You're throwing a dart at the board. Maybe it works. If it doesn't, this is probably still a kid who's going to play in the league for 10 or 15 years as a French starter splash backup, you know? And so, like, I think there's actually some decent logic with that sort of move where, 
like maybe the better play rather than rolling the dice on a Kenny Pickett or a Malik Willis in the first round is taking a Sam Howell in the second or third round, if that makes sense. Because in that at that point, you wouldn't be marrying yourself to a quarterback coming in, out in a really, really average year for the position. Now, trades, somebody trading draft picks for a existing star rarely happens. If it happens, yeah. yeah. First of all, I don't believe that San Francisco will ever let somebody else get Debo Samuel. You can't tell me that guy's too good. Yeah. You, I mean, listen, would I want him? I mean, every team in the league would want him. The guy's unbelievable. I mean, he, you know, if you put, like someone said to me, oh, he could wind up in Kansas City. Oh, yeah, you put him in Kansas City, forget it. I mean, uh, you put him anywhere. That guy is a one of the better players in the league. I mean, I and yeah. then I saw Lynch said this morning, there's no way we're letting anybody get him. Yeah, and I, I think what's – so here's what's changed, I think. You know, and you see Adams traded and Hill traded. Um, you know, and, and some of it's social media and, like, the NBA's influence on the league and everything that everybody's talked about. I think the one thing that's overlooked here, little Mike, is I think the reason some of these guys are getting moved now is that teams are more willing to move draft picks. And so like where it used to be that like the first rounder was the most precious commodity for a general manager now. And I think in part because of the success the Rams have had and how aggressive the bucks and the, the chiefs have been in building, you know, more teams are looking at it and saying analytically, how much is this first rounder worth? How much is the fifth to 15th pick really worth? How much is the 20th pick really worth? And so teams are more willing to move those picks. And I think what that's created is when you've got like an awkward situation with a player, now you have an escape hatch that didn't exist any before, you know, like the, the, the ability to get out of the Tyree kill situation with a hall of draft picks or get out of the Devonte Adams situation with a hall of draft picks might not have existed five or 10 years ago because the way draft picks were valued with that changing now, like, I think that that's why you're seeing more of these guys move. I think it would take a lot for John Lynch to even think about moving Debo Samuel. I mean, I think we're talking two first round picks and maybe more than that. I mean, uh, I, but I, I can't even imagine the, somebody getting their hands on him. Hey, listen, I understand what happened with Hill. The Kansas City couldn't afford them all. They just they couldn't do it. Right. It, it didn't work. Yeah. I, you know, you got a quarterback, you're paying that much money. It's going to hurt you. You got a tight end making a ton of money. You had to make a choice somewhere along the way. And they said, all right, we can't pay everybody. I understand that. Right. Yeah, but you don't want to well, have that happen. Nobody wants to trade and, a Hill or trade a Debo Samuel ever. And for those teams, like, and I, and I think it's a good point too, Mike, because if you look, like, where did they trade him? They traded him to a team in Miami with a quarterback on a rookie contract that did have the flexibility. To do That's that, what you, you need. Know? Absolutely. You can't and have, so, if you're paying and, your quarterback $400 million, you're going to get hurt. That's all. They're going to get hurt somewhere right. down the and line. I mean, that's all there is to it. And, and that's what ends up happening. I mean, in a lot of these cases, I mean, that's why, you know, like Tom, the greatness of Tom Brady and the greatness of Pete Manning is like Tom Brady could win when with a fourth round picket guard, Tom Brady could win after Rob Gronkowski went down for the year, you know, Peyton Manning could win with Blair white playing slot receiver for him, you know, and like, that's what it needs to be when your quarterback's making that much money. That's what it has to be is like, you're not going to be able to build around him the same way. So he's going to have to be able to 
lift up everybody around him. That's going to be the challenge for Mahomes and Allen. You know what I mean? Like those guys going forward, the challenge is going to change now because their teams can't build around them the same way. And so that's where you really, that's where the test of their greatness comes, right? Is like, it's not when they're on rookie contracts and you can stack the deck for them. It's when they get off their rookie contracts. Now they're making huge money and their part of their job is to make up the difference, you know, and, and part of their job is to make up the 35 or $40 million difference per year in what you're putting into your roster. And um, yeah, that's what's so dynamic. That's what's so fascinating. I think Mike about the way these things work now. And it's a huge reason why, again, like why Miami can afford to have the luxury of a Tyree kill on its roster where Kansas city's got tough decisions on players like that to make. Yeah, I no, I agree. So, I mean, I would have been surprised if somebody could get him. That was really, really surprised me. So, do you think there will be a lot of trades because of the lackluster level of talent, the lack of marquee stars in this draft? Will that create more yeah. trades or or, or or not more trades? Well, let's like use the example of Kansas City, right? So, they have the 29th and 30th picks in the draft. And you've been doing this for so long, you know. Um, like a lot of, in a good draft teams might have first round grades on like what, like 22, 23 players. That's like a really good draft, right? Yes. Like, so if this year's not a great year, you know, for some of these teams, the, the second round is going to start at the 15th pick. Yeah. It could start 15 or 16 on a board. It could start 15. The color changes at 15 or 16 players. Yeah. Right. And so. Like if you're can if you so like let's use your Kansas City example. They're the 29th and 30th picks, right? Yep. And that sounds good, like two first rounders for Debo Samuel. But if you're San Francisco, you have to look at that in a realistic way and say, who are we going to get with those two picks? You know. Mm -hmm. And if we're giving up Debo Samuel, are we going to be able to replace him on our roster with the picks that we're getting back? And that's where it becomes hard. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to do trades this year because the value of the high picks are diminished. Now, when we get into the middle rounds, that changes a little bit because I do think that there's, like, depth. Like, you can get, like, good, not good, not great players in the second and third rounds, and we could see more movement because of that when we get to Friday. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think as far as moving first-round picks around, if you're looking to move down, you might have to take a discount to do so. Because I don't think that there are teams that are like sitting here on Tuesday, raring to go Thursday and package picks and move way up the board and pay a premium to do it. Interesting. All right. So uh, it, it, it's still, hey, whenever there's a draft, something weird will happen. You know that it'll be interesting. So oh, something, yeah. so, yeah. something crazy will happen. It just won't happen and at the, number one. The, Mike, the beauty of this year is that, like, if you think about it, the last three years, right? Like at this point on Tuesday, the last three years, we knew who the first two picks were going to be. In 19, we knew it was going to be Kyler Murray and Nick Bosa. Uh, in 2020, we knew it was going to be Joe Burrow and Chase Young. Last year, we knew it was going to be Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. It's the first time in a long time that we're this close to the draft, and we don't know who the first two picks are going to be. So, like, that's sort of the beauty of, of, of you know, that's going to be the beauty of how, how this thing unfolds on Thursday is even if it's not a great class, there's a lot of intrigue in that. I think there's mystery around how the top 10 is going to fall much more mystery than maybe we've had in previous years. Thanks very much for a couple of minutes. Enjoy the week. Thank you. 
All right. Thanks, Mike. Enjoy the draft. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we're back after this. You're listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. We are heading into the uh, latest stages of the first round, and it's been an interesting one to say the least. Uh, there have been some new stars emerge. There have been some legacies that have taken a serious beating. There's some coaches I wouldn't give you a dollar that they're ever going to have a chance to come back with the same team. A uh, lot going on. Brian Getzeiler, Sirius XM NBA Radio, joins us. Welcome, Brian. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Good. All right, let me start with so many things have already happened here, uh, from injuries to chaos to the Nets to we have – we have legacies being tarnished and beat up. We have new emerging stars. Let me start with a positive because we have so few positives in my mind. Let me start with a positive. The emergence of Brunson, of Poole, of Maxi, guys emerging as NBA stars in these playoffs. This is what the playoffs does. The playoffs, you know, Mike, it's gut check time. Who's got the stomach? Who doesn't? Now, Again, Brunson, to me, out of the three you named, is clearly the most impressive because he was able to carry a team offensively in a way no one ever anticipated this player to do in the absence of their megastar. I mean, you look at their offense, it all orbits around Luka. In the, and Maxie's been great. But again, when you're playing with Embiid and James Harden, and even to a lesser extent, Tobias Harris and defenses are focusing on those guys with these fantastic resumes. The opportunities are a little more there. You can say as great as Jordan Poole has been, and he's been really, really good. You can say the same thing about him playing on a team with Curry and Clay Thompson. No I guess Steph Curry a lot of credit. Brunson Mike took Lamian. over with nobody there and put up 40 points. And 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 yep. even last night when he moved back to his number two role, put up another nice game uh, and and put up his 24 points and, and, and five rebounds and four assists and did the, the good things that he had to do in, in 36 minutes. So he has emerged, and he is a classic People don't realize a classic winning player won two two NCAA titles, was a player of the year, and carried that great Villanova team. The first Villanova team won some heartbreakers, uh, some really down-to-the-wire crazy games, and won that way when they won the championship. The second Villanova team was a dominant force, and they were a dominant force because Brunson was just killing people and was a player of the year player on, uh, on that team and played brilliantly with that team. Hey, Mike, he's a chameleon because he'll have the ball in his hands and lead an offense. But if you get in a situation like he is with Luca healthy and he's got to play off him, he does a great job of that too. Yep. And the other thing about this kid, he's an unrestricted free agent. He's about to get himself paid paid in a big way. He was offered a deal by the Mavs before this season and chose to pass on it and bet on himself. How good does that decision look? Good right for now? him. You know what? He's a small, he's a kid who used to work. And, and listen, his father's been involved in his life. His father used to put him through practice. Before Jay would practice with him, his father would have already have put him through drills in the morning. This kid used to have to go through drills with his father and then practice. So, I yep. mean, they were so afraid they were going to burn this guy out. But his father's been very involved in his life, as you know. And you know what? Everything has been done right with this kid, and it has been handled well. And he's taken it. He's been patient and, and said, you know what? I'll show people. And every step of the way he has showed people, and that's why he's a championship player. 
There's no doubt, Mike. And he has, he's proved it on every level that he, that, that he's, and he's gotten the opportunity on every level, but this is also a kid that had to play this way into the lineup. I mean, he was a second round pick. Dennis Smith was ahead of him. Think about that. Dallas got rid of Dennis Smith because they looked at Brunson and said, this kid's going to be a better fit with Luca. Dennis Smith was best friends with Luca at the time. And they determined this kid would be a better fit wherever he is gone. They people have slept on him because he's small, Mike. He is not a big player, but the kid's strong as an ox for his size. Okay. And as fearless as fearless could be. And you're absolutely right. No one has been a harder worker. His father's done a fantastic job with him. His father sheltered him and protected him when he's needed it. And his father's thrown him to the wolves when he's needed it. And the kid has responded every single time. And now, you know what, Mike, this is a big time NBA player. And this Dallas team is coming and coming hard in a West where there's a whole lot of moving parts. It sure is. And coaches with their jobs on the line and a whole lot going on there, as we know now. Before we get back west, and we'll talk about the Suns and the injury to Booker and everything else and what's going on in that series, the guys who have seen their legacies tarnished, I'll take them one at a time, okay? Number one, Ben Simmons. Mike, Ben Simmons, it comes down to this, and I'm going to start by saying this to you, Mike. I have tried to give him the benefit of the doubt up and down the line because I did feel like last year when the Sixers lost, Listen, he was not good offensively in that series at all. And, yes, at times afraid to shoot the basketball, afraid to get to the free throw line. He also held Trey Young to like a one of He's a good defensive player. He just is afraid to shoot the ball. That's the, the, he can Correct. do everything. He Correct. just can't shoot the ball. Yes, and in the game where – and Doc Rivers answered the question a little too honestly. And in a game when Joel Embiid turned it over eight times, he decided to blame Ben Simmons and all that. So I, I had given him the benefit of that, even though I don't like a player you know, not showing up to play in the way that he didn't show. He showed up, but he didn't show up to play. What happened here when the team falls behind 3-0 and you're slated to play with all this buildup, and this is not like I tweaked my back. This is I woke up with back soreness to me. And I, I'm, I'm not accuse a guy of faking anything, but to me it yeah, you can accuse of it. You're not out of line if you accuse him of anything you want right now. He, does, he doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt on anything. It reeks of, of two things, and one's worse than the other. Either flat-out fear, Mike, or the other part of this is not having enough, and this is worse, not having enough competitive spirit and competitive fire that wanted to roll up your sleeves and win or lose, dig in with the guys that have had my back hey, his, since I've got here. His and legacy me. right and now is a, destroyed. Case, and he doesn't have a legacy. His, his career right now as a career is destroyed. He has to rebuild it from ground zero. Now to careers that are top careers, but have all taken hits. Harden, who I never have been a fan of, again, now even his teammates saying, hey, where is it? Well, Embiid took a major shot at him and Doc Rivers after sure the did. Five Toronto Sure lost. did. He went after him. And, and the thing is, he's not wrong, but this is Joel Embiid. This is what he does. Okay, the fact is, James Harden, when Embiid is playing with a torn ligament in his right thumb, he is a righty, Mike. This is something that's going to affect his catching the ball. This is something that's going to affect him shooting the ball. It's going to affect him rebounding the ball. He is out there playing when he needs surgery. 
James Harden has to take more of an offensive and more of a scoring role. The guy hit two shots in the first three quarters of the game. He hit too late in the game when the game was pretty much out of reach. He did nothing he in game listen, five against I, Toronto. I, I, I've made the point many times. I wouldn't have Harden or Irvin anywhere near my teams at any point in my life. All right? I, 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 I don't like either one of them. I don't, I don't question their talent. I question everything else about them. Okay, and to me, the Harden legacy has taken a huge hit. The Irving legacy has taken a huge hit because you know what? There's just too much baggage. And again, where was he? And then the Durant legacy, which was starting to approach the stratosphere two years ago as a player. I heard people saying, you know, he's as good as LeBron James. No, he's not. Okay, and he's proved it again why he's not. And the bottom line is, okay, you can't compare what went on with LeBron James this year to what went on. LeBron James played his rear end off when he was healthy. He was hurt, and and he did a bad job as a general manager. He didn't do a bad job as a player this year. He played his rear end off when he was healthy. The bottom line is, Durant, even on a night where he scored 39, I'll give you the perfect example. Misses the free throw, takes himself out out of the play defensively with a half-hearted effort, doesn't chase the play down, and as they get a rebound basket to ice the game, is loafing towards the basket. Like That's a your star. Game. That's your star. Game. Yep. And, end of the first half, he, he, he takes the ball up, finds himself dribbling into a foul line jumper off the bounce, takes the shot, and immediately starts to backpedal. It was a back rim miss, which was a long rebound. And I know these days we say, hey, get back in transition defense. Don't follow your shot is a lot of what's preached. But you know the old Hubie Brownism, Mike. If you're not chasing the offensive rebound and you're not getting back on defense, what are you doing? Nothing. Well, Kevin Kevin Durant gets back on defense, and Jalen Brown proceeds to go by him like he's not even there back on the, what are you doing? And there was a lot of that stuff in the game from Durant. And, and, and part of this, listen, it's funny because you talk about LeBron James failing as a general manager for Kevin Durant. I mean, Kevin, he walked into a plum situation in Brooklyn with him and Kyrie with a group of young players with, I mean, look at what Dinwiddie's done for Dallas. And, and he was there as a reserve guard for that team in, in a role that is perfectly suited for him. Jared Allen's one of the best young defensive bigs in the league. I know LeBert's in and out of the lineup and hurt a lot, but he was a helpful player. They had pieces there and stuff to build off of. Kevin Durant came in and he started running the show and moving the chess pieces. And listen, Joseph Sy let him, Sean Marks let him. They wanted to get a signature on an extension. Now they have it. And the question you have to ask is, are they going to take the organization back from him? Because the decisions that have been made have not been good decisions. They ended up in a Harden conundrum 100% because Kevin Durant told them to go get James Harden, and they decided to listen to Kevin Durant. That, and Durant it, that, they, up- they should all be embarrassed and ashamed of themselves from the front office, from ownership to the general manager to the coach who didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, let's be honest. Let's just say it like it is. He didn't have a clue what he was doing, okay? Did not have a clue what he was doing on the bench, okay? And cannot control this team. And then afterwards says, my team was tired? My team is tired? I mean, you can't say that. Come on. I mean, he, my team's exhausted? I mean, come that. on. I you mean, imba- just, the Celtics <laughs> just embarrassed them 
or they laughed at them, the Celtics. They laughed at them. They laughed at their lack of effort. They laughed at their lack of commitment. They laughed at everything the whole series. They laughed at them. Al Horford went up and got an offensive rebound, put it back in, and laughed at them. Mike, they, they, it was easy for Boston. But here's where I think Nash's worst sin came into play. And I talk about this all the time on my NBA radio show with my partner, Sam Mitchell. And it's something not enough people talk about. The value of quality size and being willing to roll without on the floor in these big spots. Boston is huge. They are Williams and Horford. Tatum's a good 6'8", six, 6'8 eight, six, eight and a half. Jalen Brown at 6'7". And Marcus Smart, 6'3", that plays like he's 6'8". They're a, they, they're a big team. They play big. He went with little guys the yeah. entire series. Their best run in the series. And the second half of the third quarter in that game, on uh, in, in game four, was with Blake Griffin on the floor when he went with a larger group. He didn't switch that size at all. And I know Aldridge can't guard much. And I know Griffin was hurt for a period of time. And I know Drummond is fat and out of shape and really couldn't defend anyone. But Jesus, can you put some size on the floor, please? I mean, you're playing. He played a rotation of eight guys. And he rotated two centers. And essentially, with the two centers that he rotated, which were Claxton and Griffin, because Drummond played three minutes in game four, okay, were Claxton and Griffin, okay, five of the guys he had out on the floor were 6'4 or smaller. You can't play that way against this team. You you would play that way against Milwaukee when they're bringing out Giannis, Portis, and Brook Lopez on, on, on the front line. You can't play that way. But Nash didn't really move off of that until the until he was totally desperate towards the end of the third quarter of Game Four, down three zero. You're supposed to have some versatility there. I'll tell you something else, and this is and and this, this is something no one has talked about. And it's an enormous embarrassment for the Brooklyn Nets. They made a decision at the end of the regular season to convert Kessler Edwards, a second-round pick, okay, from a two-way contract to a permanent contract. And they had to cut somebody to do it. And they cut James Johnson. Now, Mike, I know James Johnson is nuts. I know James Johnson is erratic. James Johnson can guard the perimeter. You think it would have helped them with how bad their defense was to have – 10 to 15 minutes of James Johnson on Tatum or Brown in that series per game. What do you think that would have done? I mean, uh, that's a veteran. Come on. Like, these are uh, the decisions. They, they, I, I, made, they made so it's many so bad hard decisions. so to, to fathom where their heads were on some of this stuff. Oh, please. The, the, whole, the whole organization, just go away. Please, all of you, just go away. Okay? They, they could, what they did this year and what they did to their – fans, what they did to their fan base, what they did to the people who paid their salaries, it was an embarrassment, a complete colossal embarrassment and legacy damaging. You're talking about players with legacies, Harden, all right, even Irving, Durant with a huge legacy, damaged completely with what we saw in this series. You know what? You're going to have to get it back. if you can. And you're getting old. It's not going to be easy to get it back. Let's not spend any more time on that nonsense. Word on the West before we uh, East before we go West. The other thing is Trey Young has been beat up and pulverized and destroyed in this series. He got one lucky ball to bounce for him in one game where Butler took a bad shot to end the game. I don't know why he needed a three when he could have gone to the basket with four seconds. That's the only mistake Butler's made. He's been dominant. And Miami has decided, hey, we are physically going to torment Trey Young with size, with power, with strength, and they have just killed them in this series. 
What a defensive job by P.J. Tucker on Trey Young. Really, he has been absolutely awesome. And listen, the Hawks had a tough start to this series, if we're being fair. They played in a Friday night play, and, and then they were rolled out on the early game on Sunday on the road. No Granted, question. not a lot of travel. But you know what? But Miami's just too big and strong for them. That's handle. all. You know what I mean? Miami's just too big and strong for them. That's all. You know, well, that's the other. Yeah. They, they weren't beating them in the series and, and, anyway. And you know, and, and you know, and, nobody wants to use a physical. Nobody wants to use a physical thing it, than Pat Riley. Pat Riley wants to beat somebody up more than anything. He wants to physically impose his will, and they clearly have physically imposed their will on Atlanta. There's no doubt. They, they have been much stronger. They have been much better. I was surprised in Game Four that Miami was able to dominate them in the way that they did without Kyle Lowry. Um, that to me was beyond impressive. You you know, you're, the thing is, Mike, when Larry's out there, you forget how versatile Hero can be. Hero can play point guard and does a great job offensively of playing point guard. But you look at how good Miami's defense has been. And if you don't have that traditional type of big to try to neutralize out of Bayou inside, and Bam can be this versatile perimeter force. And when you're playing big minutes with John Collins at center, uh, it's it's going to be very tough to beat Miami. And right now, Miami looks so strong here. I mean, you got three teams in this Eastern Conference, Miami, Milwaukee, and Boston, who really any of them could go to the finals and be very difficult to deal with because all of them, big, tough, strong, lots of playoff experience up and down the line across the board with those three teams. But I couldn't be – I thought Miami-Atlanta, Mike, I told you last time we talked, I thought Miami-Atlanta was going to be a close series. I am beyond impressed with Miami's Miami's been wonderful. All right, let's go west – and, I mean, you want to shake your head sometimes at some of the things Memphis has done, at some of the things. How about Minnesota allowing Memphis to have a 19-2 run in their building and not even a timeout? I mean, not even a timeout. What are we looking like at? New, I mean, what the are these race, guys right? doing? Let them play through it. I mean, timeouts are weapons to stop momentum. I, I don't understand it for the life of me. I mean, I'm old school like you are, Mike. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know why. I don't know why you don't do that. But I will say this about Taylor Jenkins. Taylor Jenkins did something. We've seen Monty Williams do it. Uh, we've seen Jason Kidd do it. Jenkins did it. Steve Nash is the only guy that didn't do it. All right. When he wasn't happy with the way a game was officiated, he shined a light on it publicly. That's what and you yes, should you do. Take the rip and the That's what you grand, should. You have okay, to do. You have to. You have to. And I don't want to go back to the Nets here. They mauled Durant off the ball. I don't think right. Boston. That's what you do. Where was Steve Nash on that? And it's give Minnesota word. and give Minnesota credit for one other thing. Popovich, Eric Spolstra, even we have three coaches here. All right, two guys that I mean, Keith Granite, it's his third job. Monty Williams got a lot of experience. Taylor Jenkins is a baby when it comes to the playoffs. He's out there calling guys out. You need to do this to protect your star players. Jenkins is protecting Morant in a way that Nash didn't protect Kevin Durant, Mike. And give Minnesota credit because they have made John Morant pay on the defensive end a lot. I mean, they yes, have they made have. sure they have done a very good job of making sure whoever he was going to match up with took him to town. And they have really got him thinking on the defensive end of the floor, and it has hurt him, there's no question. There's no question. I also, the, the guy in Minnesota, you got to give a ton of credit to also is Carl Anthony Towns and what he did in game four. Carl Anthony Towns pretty much made a decision. I'm not floating through these games where I'm not going to see the ball enough. You're going to get me the ball. You're going to get me the ball in the spots that I want. And if you don't get me the ball, I'm going to scream at you 
to give me the ball. You know, the thing is, I'm hearing that even though, you know, we heard about this relationship between Russell and Towns and how good that was. I don't know how good that relationship is, by the way, Mike. And I think Russell's ball dominance has had a lot to do with it. Towns took charge of that game in a very unique way. What do you have, 17 free throw attempts? Yep. He, he made sure that his stamp was going to be on that game and made himself very difficult to defend. And I get the fact that Memphis wasn't happy with the officiating, but Carl Anthony, listen, Memphis is struggling in the series. One of the reasons they're struggling in the series is because Jaron Jackson hasn't been on the floor enough. And one of the reasons Jaron Jackson hasn't been on the floor enough is because Towns has taken it to him and forced him into foul trouble. And that's something if Taylor Jenkins doesn't figure out how to solve that, this series could be a problem here for Memphis. Minnesota well, that's who we are. Let's start there. Job. The series is 2-2 right now. Game five tonight, 2-2. Do you give Minnesota a punch's chance in the series? I do. I absolutely do. I, you, know, the, you know, you and I talked before the playoffs began. The one thing we talked about with Memphis was a lack of experience. That lack of experience is showing through here. I thought there was a loss of composure by them in game four. Um, and, I, and I think for Morant here, he's he's struggling, and he's struggling in a variety of ways. First of all, they've defended him really, really well. I mean, Patrick Beverly, for whatever you want to say about all his hey, antics he and all is, his nonsense, He is the kind of guy you like to have him on your team. Player. You like having him on your team in the playoffs. He's got that same kind of Iguodala quality, the same kind of the guy who does all the dirty work. You want to have those kind of guys on your team in the playoffs. He makes a difference in the playoffs. There's no question. No question. So so I think from that standpoint, I think you have to take Minnesota seriously here, especially if Towns is going to do what he does here. And Towns has made it. He has spoken up within that locker room, from what I'm told, in a big enough way that he, he is refusing to be ignored by that coach. He's refusing to be ignored by his teammates. He wants this thing won and lost on his shoulders. And until they prove they can guard him when he gets in that mode, that's going to be a major, major issue. And I, I wonder how much it's bothered Morant, how efficient the team has been when he's been off the floor. It's interesting, Mike. You know, we talk about in baseball, we talk about this concept all the time, value replacement player, right? They bring in a, a backup point guard for Morant that's different than Morant but is a very good player in Tyus Jones, one of the more underrated players in the league. And what's happened there is other guys have gotten going. Like Desmond Bain's been, a, and as good as he's been this year, and you saw Morant the other day, gave, gave him the his award, post right. trophy to Desmond yeah. Bain. Gave him the award. That was a nice Bain's gesture. Been. Nice gesture, um, yes. Right, but but you but so you see you you see what that's been. But Jones has been so good when they've and and different again. Other guys have been way more involved. It's almost like Morant has wanted to dominate less and be more of the kind of presence Jones has been. He doesn't look comfortable doing that. Here's the other thing about Morant. I don't know how healthy he is either, Mike. You know what? He was hurt for three weeks. He played one game before he came back and before the playoffs began. And as quick as he is, the burst doesn't totally look like it's there right now. And I think he's having a hard time adjusting to that. Now, the other game tonight is 2-2. 2-2, Phoenix, and I told you from the start of the season, by the playoffs, that I thought Phoenix was ahead above everybody else. We were not expect they did not play well in the first two games, which I want to be fair about, and I want to give the Pelicans credit. But no one knew that Booker was going to have this kind of injury, and they have called out the officials. They're going home as a one seed. Game five tonight. What you can count on is in thirty five minutes. In thirty five minutes. Chris Paul did not shoot a free throw in game four. 
in game five tonight, you can bet he will shoot double digits free throws. I mean, you can absolutely take that. You can take that to the house tonight that he will shoot double digit free throws and they will shoot a bundle of free throws. Now, I don't know if book is thinking about playing, not playing at this point in the, uh, uh, for tonight. I don't know what his plan is. Uh, if he's planning to come back in this series or not with the hamstring, or they're going to try and see if they can roll through the series without him. I think they can win this series even without him, but they don't want to play seven games in the series if they can help it. What do you think Phoenix is right now with the Booker injury and where they are overall? I don't think that Booker's going to come back in this series. I mean, I think if they were down 3-2, you might see them try to push it with him, but I don't think Booker's going to come back in the series. Listen, I, Willie, you know, we've seen this. It's interesting to know. So, you know, you saw how Ime Yudoka dominated Steve Nash. He also sat next to him on the bench last year and knew everything that he's going to do. Willie Green, the head coach of the Pelicans, has had a major advantage in game planning against Phoenix because he was Monty Williams' lieutenant last year. So he knows what he's going to see. The Suns are a jump-shooting team. They're a really good jump-shooting team. But he has taken advantage of that knowledge and tried to force them into a game that they're not totally comfortable with. And they've, as good as Aiton has been at times, they've underused Aiton in this series. Aiton, when you have Devin Booker not on the floor, Aiton becomes your big advantage. And they have not looked to utilize Aiton. Excellent point. The guy is shooting 70%. They could be down 3-1 in the series if Jackson Hayes doesn't, doesn't get himself kicked out with a dirty play. I mean, it's it has not gone well for them at all. And what Alvarado has done to Chris Paul, I mean, and give David Griffin credit. He picked this kid up off the scrap heap, all right? And he has done a great job of impacting the series and taking Chris Paul out of his game. The Suns have to change how they're doing things a little bit. The Suns have to go to the basket more. They're going to have to run some more side pick and roll for Chris Paul. I know that they've been coming under screens, allowing him to shoot, and at times he's punished them. But I think he's got to look to get to the basket more, to your point, to get to those double-digit free-throw numbers. Here's the other big problem the Suns have had in this series. They haven't been able to guard Brandon Ingram. In, in a series with Chris Paul out there, Brandon Ingram has been the best player on the floor in the series. He has, and they've gone to him and cleared out space for him and allowed him to operate and, and d- done everything in the way that, that Ingram is most comfortable. And I think for I think what's going to have to happen here for the Suns, they're about to start to roll some doubles at him. They can't single cover this player anymore. Ingram has been that dominant. And the thing is, you want to be careful because Ingram's one of these guys that he hits contested shots. So if you let him get going early in a game and he finds some rhythm, he's, he'll light you up for 35, for 37, and, and carry a game on his back. Ingram has become that kind of player. The Suns, their major defensive game planning, and that's Really, offensively, I, I, I'm not thrilled with what I've seen out of the Suns. Defensively is where I've been massively disappointed. Well, in this their game. transition they defense has been awful. The floor, and they got to figure out something to do to solve Brandon Ingram. And I do think a lot more double teams and even the half doubles to just take away some driving lanes from him, but have the ability to recover out the shooters. And I'd be forcing the Pels to shoot a lot more threes at this point and get the ball out of Ingram's hands because the ball in Ingram's hands is eating them alive. Well, and also they've been bad on transit on transition defense. They've been terrible. I mean, terrible. they admit it's the worst they've played all season that way. Uh, you made the point of Aiton. Aiton's hitting 70% of his shots from the floor. They got to get him the ball more. McGee, when he's in the game, is shooting nine, 90-something percent from the floor in his field goal percentage. These guys can score at will if they get him the ball inside. And plus, Bridges has got to be far more aggressive than he's been. Bridges has... 
he, he took a quantum step forward, but he is a guy who likes to be the third wheel or be the blend-in guy. He needs to take more of a starring role in this series now. He has to. They need him to do that. And I would expect him to be very aggressive offensively in this game tonight. That's a great point, Mike. It really is because he's he is comfortable in his role playing next to Devin Booker. When they spent time with Booker out, he stepped up in that role and and really and shot the ball more, was more aggressive off the bounce. He's as fundamentally a sound a player. I mean, we talked earlier in the pod about Jalen Brunson and his and and how good his game's been. Bridges comes from the same place. He's taught that Jay Wright style of basketball, playing off two feet, everything fundamentally sound, you know, excellent footwork, the pivots, all of it. And he's a wonderful defensive player. So all of that. But he has to be more of a star here. And some of that is going to have to be off the bounce. Mikael Bridges is far too talented a player, Mike, to just be a catch-and-shoot type of guy. He's got more going for him than that. And, yes, it gets easier for him when defenses are paying attention to Booker and Paul. But now you're going to have the defenses paying attention to you. And you have to come out there okay, in this game five and be an offensive force. It's not enough for you just to be the, the glorified role guy that you've been all this time. I think it's a great point for them, They have, which is interesting for them. And they played well early in the season when Booker was hurt. But they have struggled to fill the usage efficiently without Booker. We mentioned Aiden. It's certainly on Aiden. And with Aiden, with a big guy, it's on other guys to get him the ball. But a lot of this is on Mikael Bridges. I think there are nights where, as a franchise, if you're going to be the team that everyone expects, there are nights you show up and say, this is us. Tonight is a game that if that game is not 37-19 or 20 at the end of the first quarter, then I'm saying, whoa, this series is not going to be pleasant for Phoenix. They're going to get by, but it's not going to be pleasant. Phoenix needs to give the Pelicans the back of their hand tonight and just say, not tonight. You're not even in this ball game tonight. They need to have one of those games, even without Booker. They need to have, they, you know, they're more than capable of having that game. They need to have that kind of step up game where they show the other team. You're not in our league when we play our a game and they haven't showed the Pelicans their a game in this series. No, listen, the Pelicans have played very well also, but no, the Suns have played well below what we've expected them to do. But but more than that, Mike, you're correct in the in the how important a good start is because if the Pelicans hang around and the Pelicans do some decent things in the first half of that game, and all of a sudden you look up, okay, and there's six minutes left in the third quarter, and it's a four-point game, and the Pelicans feel like they have momentum, that pressure starts to build, and it doesn't build on the Pelicans. The Pelicans are playing with house money right now. They don't really care where this goes. They weren't supposed to win two games in this series. Whatever they do here is gravy, and they're loose as loose could be. The Suns, the closer this game is, the later this game gets to, the more the Suns collectively are going to tighten up. And that's a big challenge for Monty Williams here. And it's and you got two chances because you're right about the beginning of the game. You also have a chance where you come out at halftime. Because if you don't do that in the first half, you want to come out early third quarter and come out and blitz this team and do everything you can to do that. But by the same token, 
Some of it's going to have to be the Suns have been one of the slower teams in the league this year. I actually think against this group, they're going to have to play with some more pace. I think they're going to have, they, they have to figure out sources of easy baskets in the absence of Booker. And I know that it doesn't involve eight in a ton, but you're going to have to get out of transition a little bit because the other thing about getting out in transition, it takes away what Alvarado has the impact he's had on the series. We talked about Beverly for Minnesota. Alvarado's emerged as that kind of guy for he's New Orleans a nice and taking Chris Paul out of what he likes to do in the half court. So how do you combat that a little bit? Let's get some easy buckets in the open floor. You you need they need whether it's eight inside or some easy buckets in the open floor. And they have to take themselves away a little bit in this game five of being a jump shooting team. Brian Getzeiler, the uh, serious XM NBA radio guy on the NBA playoffs. You know, you can see certain things. You know the Nets are going to have massive changes. As many as they can do reasonably, they have to change so much. The Jazz are going to go through a meta. You can tell the Jazz players know it. Quinn Snyder knows it. The Jazz thing is done. I mean, they play. They have played in the series like the series, like they're done as a group. Uh, it's like we're not going to be seeing each other next year. You can almost see that from the Jazz in the series. You know that? Mike, I can't remember watching a best player on a team in a playoff series look as emotionally disengaged as Donovan Mitchell has looked for this team. He's playing like he doesn't want to be there. Absolutely. There is zero trust. And he doesn't want to throw the ball to his big man. He threw the alley-oop to Gobert in that one the game. It was was the obvious pass to make. It was the, the defense gave it to them, and they took it. But beyond that, there's no heart in this team. And Quinn Snyder, who's a very good coach for the most part, I haven't agreed with some of his philosophies of, of play over, over the years here with all the three-pointers, and certainly you know, got out coached in last year's playoffs by Ty Lue, but generally is a good to very good NBA coach. Yeah, he had no idea what to do. He's desperate. This is a group that's completely fractured. Mike, I'll go back to something we talked about last time we talked. Okay, the dude did 15 minutes and 3,000 words to the media the last week of the season, how their coverage is dividing his team. If that's your go-to on what's dividing your team, your team's done. Your team's divided already. And this is a group that's got no heart. There's going to be massive changes here. And there are a big campaign coming up from between the owner, Ryan Smith, between Danny Ainge, a team president, and between Dwayne Wade, minority owner, do everything they can to tell Donovan Mitchell, we want you to stay here. They're going to try to involve Mitchell in personnel decisions. They're going to try to give him skin in the game because everything you're hearing is that Donovan Mitchell wants out and wants to find a way to the Knicks. Maybe that happens and maybe that doesn't happen. But I will tell you something. As good as Rudy Gobert is, multi-time defensive player of the year and all that, he's a much more replaceable piece on this team than Donovan Mitchell is. And if they have to go trade Donovan Mitchell, it's going to be a major step back for this organization. And, you know, it's gotten really messy, really fast. Quinn Snyder didn't sign that contract extension. He's dead man walking as a coach. Utah is going to have some major, major changes here. Danny Ainge came in to put his stamp on the team. And it looks like that at one point when he came in, you felt like leave well enough alone, right? Now this team is desperate for a Danny H stamp on it. All right. Two things. Number one, Miami, Boston, both ultra impressive first round. Which one to you has a advantage going forward? 
I think Boston right now, not by much, but I think Boston right now, Boston defensively. I, I can't remember a team in recent memory, the last 10, 15 years in the NBA that was as strong and as disciplined defensively as this group is. They know who they are. They know what they are. They are playing literally on a string. Um, the shocker with them is how good Tatum's become defensively. I mean, Tatum is, you always knew he could be, a, he's a shooter and can get his own shot and all that. Jason Tatum, as a high-level defender and a high-level passer, which is what he was in these last four games, puts them on a different level overall. Getting Robert Williams back is enormous for them because there's just such a big difference activity-wise, athleticism-wise between him and Daniel Tice. So I, I think I give Boston a slight advantage over Miami. Don't get me wrong. I think Miami is very, very good here. They are. But to me, Boston's as good as I've seen in the East so far in the first round. And, um, and in the West... If the Booker injury has opened the door, has it opened the door for the Warriors or has it opened the door a little bit for somebody else? It has opened the door for two teams, in my estimation. Number one is obviously the Warriors. The Warriors have played at a very high level here. Believe it or not, I do worry about the Warriors a little bit defensively. Clay is not the same player he was defensively. And although with Draymond directing traffic, everybody seems to be in the right spots. But with Clay not being what he was, Poole not being wonderful on that end of the floor, and Curry, you know, kind of coming in and out on that end of the floor, I do worry about a little bit about them defensively. Mike, watch the Dallas Mavericks. Watch them. Guys are growing by leaps and bounds right in front of us here. Um, the size problems that they're going to have, okay, that they, they, they – the one thing where Utah's hurt them a little bit in this series has been with size and Gobert. What other big are you going to face? Maybe DeAndre Ayton, but I might take my chances with Dwight Powell against them. Brunson's been terrific. Dorian Finney, everybody needs a Dorian Finney-Smith on their team. For the that guy's level of activity, how good he is defensively, and Reggie Bullock's been another one that's played great on the defensive end of the floor. Dallas, it, it's, you know, Dallas is one of these, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts type of team with how this team plays around Luka. So I would look at this and tell you, if Phoenix is going to struggle here, I think we should be... I, Definitely Golden State's a candidate, but let's not sleep on the Dallas Mavericks right now that I think are eminently dangerous. Thanks, Brian, very much. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Enjoy the playoffs. You got it, Mike. Take care. All right, now. Brian Getzeiler, the Sirius XM NBA radio guy. Back in. Want to email the Mike Francesa podcast? Drop Mike a note at Podcast at gmail.com. All right, so there's a whole bunch on the uh, NBA playoffs, which have been interesting. Uh, somewhat puzzling at times, embarrassing for certain teams like the Nets. But uh, overall, uh, there's some storylines to watch there. Uh, and the uh, NFL draft, which comes your way uh, this weekend, starting Thursday night, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Remember, send your questions, comments to Mike Francesa Podcast at Gmail. Dot com. That's Mike Francis, a podcast at gmail.com, betrivers.com, or Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get all your podcasts, you can find the Mike Francis, a podcast. Um, in baseball, the Yankees are taking advantage of this very soft spot in their schedule. It should continue with the Orioles in town. The Mets... Winning games right now in all different ways, all different shapes and sizes like they did last night against the Cardinals. So Buck has everything clicking right now. 
Nobody's as good as they look right now, the Mets, but the Mets are piling up wins and piling up a big lead in the division right now where no one else can get out of their own way. Remember, every game they open up the lead now, somebody's got to chase them down. So sometimes you can go run and hide in April and early May, and that's what the Mets and Buck are trying to do right now. They also got good news on DeGrom. Or let me put it this way, at least it's not bad news. So it's something they can build on, and obviously their starting pitching has been sensational, and Scherz has been unbelievable, and he provides what you want out of an ace. He provides leadership. He provides stability. He's there to take the ball every go-round, and he's there, and he pitches innings, and he's there on the bench on days off as a leader. You're getting everything you could expect out of Scherzer right now, and the Mets continue to... Uh, win games, both New York teams winning games. As I said, the Yankees taking advantage of this very, very soft spot in the schedule. Need to play better against the Orioles at home the next couple of days, which I'm sure they will. Uh, Enjoy the week, folks. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan, and you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.